Am I on here? I guess I'm on. Oh, good. Brian's doing double duties. He prayed and he did the uh, uh, <clears throat> scripture reading. Now he's going to do children's ministry. So he's, we've got him working hard this morning. Uh, <clears throat> I think I'm going to start with this first slide. I'm a geography kind of guy. And we have a map. Now what I forgot is, at least in, in NASA used to have these little clever uh, <clears throat> markers. And you could kind of zoom in and, and show it with a laser pointer. But hopefully you can see in this map, Judea is at the bottom, or actually Idumea, if you like, and I'm going to stretch here. You can see Jerusalem, whoa, we'll step here. Jerusalem's right here, okay? And you'll see north of it, Samaria, and just below the word Samaria, there's a, several dots in a row. If you were close, you'd see where it says Jacob's well, and you'll see Sychar, uh, and then north of that, straight north of that, is Galilee. <clears throat> so that's going to be kind of important to us. He starts in Jerusalem, and he's going to make his way up to Sychar on the way to Galilee. So, so much for geography. Now, Mount Gerizim is the, or Gerizim, excuse me, better pronunciation. Mount Gerizim is the fifth mountain we've talked about. We've talked about Sinai. We've talked about Zion. We've talked about Carmel. That's the way the Pentecost like to hear it. Um, we talked about the Mount of Transfiguration last week. Now, those are fairly popular mountains. I don't think Gerizim is a popular mountain. So <clears throat> it may be one new to you, but Mount Gerizim is right there at Sychar. The bottom of Mount, Mount Gerizim is Sychar. On the east side is Mount Ebal. Now, they're not terribly high mountains, but they're mountains. You can surely see that. And right in the middle is Sychar. It's about 30 miles north, almost straight north of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's a mountain of great significance the Samaritans. You might say, well, why is it significant to them? They think this is where much happened. Certain things, certainly some of the things are true. Uh, <clears throat> they think, and it's true that when a Abram came to the promised land, he left Haran, the last stop, he came to the promised land. At the base of Mount Jeroboam, or Jeroboam, yeah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, excuse me, Jerusalem is where he first sacrificed Build an altar and sacrifice to God. Pretty significant feature. Uh, <clears throat> it's also where he received the blessing of God that his, uh, he would be the father of many nations. It's where they believe, at least the Samaritans, believe that Abram, or Abraham at that time took his son Isaac on the mountain to sacrifice him. Jews don't think it's the same mountain, but that's what the Samaritans believe. And it's also... And this is shown in Joshua 24, is where Joshua renewed the covenant with the, the uh, Israelites just before he died, that they would believe and be faithful. Uh, now, Sychar itself, by the Samaritans, is, they think that's the same city as Shechem. Most people today will say it's right beside Shechem. They're both between in this little valley. So for the Samaritans, it's a pretty important little place. Uh, what did they think about themselves? You know, we always hear, we see it from the Jewish perspective, they were a bunch of half-breeds. When the Assyrians came and took over uh, Israel, they deported most of the important uh, Jews from, from the northern kingdom and brought other people in. Some Assyrians, some of them conquered people from other places, and the Jews believed they just intermarried. So you had this kind of a half-breeds, really ugly term, but that's kind of the view that the Jews had with them. Well, the Samaritans didn't think that's what they were. 
they believed that they were the remnant, the remnant of those, who, of those who had left. I'm not, the remnant of those who stayed. So many people were taken out, but there was obviously some Samaritans who were not removed from the land. And they intermarried, and they kept the faith. So they didn't see themselves the same way the Jews saw them. Interestingly, what they believed, too. <clears throat> in some respects, they were more conservative than the Jews. The Samaritans only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, was inspired. The rest of that, those revisionist Jews from the South kind of added to as their kind of their views. And so they, they took a very conservative view. Now their Pentateuch was slightly differently. They had a you know, revised standard version that was new to them and good for them. Uh, the other thing about now Gerizim is important is that after the Jews returned with Nehemiah, about the same time frame, uh, they weren't off, they weren't invited to participate in the temple worship there because they were not full, full Jews, at least from the Jewish perspective. So they went to Mount Gerizim and built a temple there and worshiped on Mount Gerizim for a few centuries until the Maccabees conquered Palestine. Maccabees were very strong uh, worshipers. Of the, they believed in the temple. They strengthened the temple. And they destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim because it wasn't true God worship to the Jews. So you can see from the very beginning, there's a little bit of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, both in how they saw things and whether they allowed to worship and, and uh, continue. So with that, I'd like to pray and ask God's spirit to, to lead us. Father God, we know without your Holy Spirit, there is no purpose in us being here. We can't worship you. We certainly can't understand you. So come, Holy Spirit, and reveal yourself and your truth to us. Um, may this be a day that is another step in our transformation to be in your likeness. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Now, what's the context of this chapter 4? Well, chapter 4, as you might think, Bill would say this, 4 comes after 3, we're good for that. We know what John 3 is about, right? John 3 is when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and they had this conversation, and then Jesus ends with, you know, John 3, 16, John 3, 17, goes on the rest of the chapter. Um, <clears throat> in that, we hear Jesus say, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom. Well, that baffles Nicodemus. That just baffles him. He doesn't understand these things. And Jesus goes this far. He says, are you a teacher and you don't understand these things? Well, the, after that conversation, we see Jesus, in fact, the beginning of chapter 4, he, begins, he leaves Jerusalem and Judea is a whole, whoops, the map's gone, but Judea is a whole area south or around Jerusalem. He begins to teach and preach and heal in that area. We also see a couple things as chapter 3 ends. John the Baptist has this most uh, significant statement he, talking about Jesus. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. Well, we don't see this in John, but we see this in the other, the other gospels. Soon after he said this, he was arrested. He was kind of decreased real fast in a way. Uh, when John is uh, arrested, as I said, Jesus is continuing around Judea, but Jesus learns of this, and we see in the early part of chapter 4 
The Pharisees see Jesus' disciples baptizing more people even than John had baptized. Well, the Pharisees thought they got finally gotten rid of John the Baptist. Now they've got Jesus on their hands. And he's baptizing and challenging them as well. So interestingly, Jesus decides to go through Samaria to Galilee. Galilee is not nearly as, who would say, a hot bed of Judaism with all the Pharisees. It would be a peace, more peaceful place where he could uh, preach. He goes there because his time had not yet come. And he, was, he didn't want to have a great conflict with the Jews there in Jerusalem and Judea. So he goes to Samaria. Now, can I go back to the map? If you remember where we, Samaria is dead center in Samaria is where we're talking about. South, dead center, south in Samaria is Judea and Jerusalem. So the obvious way to get from Jerusalem to Galilee is to go straight north. You go through Sychar, or Sychar, as some people pronounce it. Well, you know, the Jews, though, who have no dealings with the Samaritans, they like to go the long way. So they go straight east out of there, out of Jerusalem, cross the Jordan River, go straight north, hang a left, add about 25 miles to an 80-mile trip. You know, it's kind of like going to Columbus. Most of us would probably pick up I-71 and go to Columbus. But if you were a Jew and Samaria was down south of us, you would go to Akron, go down 71 or 77 Akron, follow that right on down to Zanesville area, pick up I-70, go east, go west, and get to Columbus. You can do it. It just takes a lot longer time. Well, for multiple reasons, Jesus decides to take the straight, straight path. And he takes off. Now, <clears throat> he, as at the well, the disciples are gone, and a Samaritan woman comes up. And he speaks to her at noon, a single woman alone. He asks her for a drink, or says, give me a drink. As we consider this encounter, we're going to see Jesus revealing himself more openly than he has done to anyone else. Amazingly. Notwithstanding the fact that she was female, males and females that don't know each other, not, not family, don't talk to each other in those days. Her moral status, we're going to find out, let's say she was loose or uh, immoral, if I'm going to be more direct. Her religion, again, the Jews saw this Samaritan religion as really half-baked. And partly because they, didn't, they only accepted the Pentateuch. And her race... They saw, saw her as an inferior race, a mix of multiple bloods. But notwithstanding this, Jesus decides to talk to her. Jesus is no respecter of persons. You know, if other people had been there, it, the conversation couldn't have gone on because guys don't talk to gals in that time of, by themselves. A separate, private conversation. You know, in response to Jesus' request for the water, the Samaritan woman, I think, is suspicious, very careful, and not very spiritually sensitive. In fact, I think she's a bit snitty. Now, we don't, you don't get the sense of, we can't hear the words, but I think it was something like this. How is it that you, a Jew, ask drink for me, a woman of Samaria? You know, she's suspicious about Jesus' motives. Single man talking to a single female in private. What was Jesus' motive, she's thinking? 
he's a foreigner, I'm a Samaritan. He's probably more righteous than I am. He sounds like he's more formal, he might be more formally religious. And I've got this unsavory reputation. And he's come to the water without even in a bucket to draw water out? Why is he here? She apparently wanted to be alone because he came at noon when the well was typically vacant. She was likely ostracized from her community by her lifestyle, so she chose to live and work alone. I think that was a protective device to avoid the sneers and whispers of her neighbors. But you know, the impact of loneliness is not just social. When I came to this chapter, I was thinking it was basically a social issue here. But listen to these words. I think I've got a slide for this one. Uh, this is from our Surgeon General, current Surgeon General in April, end of April, wrote this. There's an epidemic of loneliness in the United States, and lacking connection can increase the risk for premature death to levels comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. The report warns that the physical consequences of poor connections can be devastating, including a 29% increase risk of heart disease and attacks, 32% increase in risk of stroke. This one got my attention, a 50% risk of developing dementia, 50% increased risk of developing dementia for adults. Those are startling, scary numbers. Now, I don't think we can take those numbers and say they apply to this uh, woman from Sychar. But they do indicate that there's consequences of loneliness that go beyond just the social interaction. They have physical implications. But I think, I just leave this as kind of a, maybe a rabbit trap, but a rabbit trip, rabbit hole. I think it's more importantly for us that they warn us of our need for community. You know, we can be lonely too. One of the strengths about this smaller church is that we have connectivity here. Many places don't. But if you see your loved ones or someone that's just kind of stepping away, we can pray for them. We can try to reach out to them because we need each other. And Jesus knew that this woman of Samaria needed the gospel and she needed community. Well, in response to her asking him, how could he possibly ask for a drink? Jesus begins to speak of this living water that he could give her. I think she first misunderstands this reference to living water, probably thinking he was talking about some sort of fresh water. You know, this well is 100 feet deep. It's, I would probably think, rather stagnant. And there must be much nicer water. Maybe Jesus was talking about that. Um, but remember, he didn't even have a bucket. So where is he going to get this living water? And where is this fresh water? Well, how can he get it? You know, we don't know the tenor of her voice, but I think she's still a bit sarcastic. Because he didn't even have a bucket. He's there, he's talking about living water, and she knows the area around Sychar, and she knows there's no fresh water around here. And by the way, does this Jew think he's better than our patriarch father Joseph, and Jacob, and then his son Joseph, who gave us this well? Well, Jesus continues on. He didn't seem perturbed by her lack of spiritual perceptivity or even any kind of snittiness she still had. He begins to elaborate. The water he's talking about is fundamentally different than other water, in at least two ways. Because in a supernatural way, the one who drinks of this water will not be thirsty again. 
Well, that's quite a promise, especially in Sychar, a pretty arid area. Sounds pretty attractive. Well, the second way Jesus' water is completely different is that it will become a spring of water welling up in the one who drinks it. Now, that, I think, is really kind of a, makes me scratch my head a little bit. What's he talking about here? And certainly it was difficult for this woman from Sychar. Now, I think her attitude's beginning to soften. She's thinking, well, maybe this individual male Jew, I don't trust him a whole lot, but he seems like he really is sincere. Maybe he's really trying to help me. Maybe there's something he can, I can gain from this. So she decides to at least check it out. She's got to continue to talk with him. But I think she's still thinking about, you know, this kind of water that spills and wet. Um, water that would last forever, though, would be very helpful because she wouldn't have to go to the well every last day in the middle of the day and drag it back. Um, but she does not understand this reference to living water as being a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Her response in verse 15 was, Sir, give me of this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come and draw water here. That's a very physical thought. She doesn't mention anything about eternity or eternal. She's focused on her physical needs to bring water back and forth. But Jesus continues this process of drawing her in. He's persistent in reaching the hearts of his elect. To, uh, and that's just really praiseworthy. You know, even though she's basically disinterested in all this talk about uh, eternal life and things like that, even though she's a character that has you know, questionable morals, she's not valued in her society, and she's nearly blind to the truth. Jesus reaches out. He calls her to repentance and a new life, which we're going to see as we continue. It's like the first point. Jesus seeks the lost, even those who are uninterested, hostile, suspicious, slow to anger, and not valued in society. That's a blessing. The uh, part in John 7 that Sophia read probably happened about a year later when Jesus returned to Jerusalem and was participating at the Feast of Tabernacles. Listen to those words. They remind us a lot of what he just said to the woman of uh, Samaria. <clears throat> On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit, Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit hadn't been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Here's the promise. He that believes in Jesus, that, it has, that is, has a living faith, as the Scripture says, out of his heart, or more, more literally, out of his belly, Insides in the viscera shall flow rivers of living water. He shall receive spiritual blessings and divine grace so great in abundance that not only will he or she be refreshed and satisfied, but that water will work through the believer to all those around him to bring life and salvation. That's a promise. We clearly see this is what's happened in the apostles right after Pentecost, which comes up in a couple of weeks. We'll finish this time of the resurrection here, and we'll move to Pentecost. Well, after Pentecost, we see the apostles were truly refreshed as the Spirit came and descended upon them. And they became instruments of taking that spiritual refreshment, that living water, and sharing it across Jerusalem and Judea 
in Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. But let's go back to the Samaritan woman. Do you think she had some sense of about this is going on? I doubt she had a clue what Jesus was talking about. I think her goal was to get water and go back home and get through this tough day. It's just one more tough day in a terribly difficult life for her. Centuries earlier, Ezekiel had foretold of this time. Again, some scripture that, uh, the scripture that Sophie had read. He had foretold of a time of refreshing and action of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel, <clears throat> I will spring, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and all your idols, from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a heart, new heart and a new spirit I will put it within you. I will remove that heart of, of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will cleanse you from all uncleanliness. The water of God is a cleansing water which leads to a new heart and spirit in the one who has been the one cleansed by God. Now I'd like to take a quick another little trip over and go back to chapter 3. The, the contrast, I think this is intentional by John, I think is remarkable. Here we have this Samaritan woman who has this encounter with Jesus. The Samaritan woman was the complete outsider. She was the wrong gender. It's better in those days to be guys. Um, she was the wrong race. She was a Samaritan. She had probably little of any religious training, and her morals were not what we would like. But Jesus, Jesus came to her. Even though she was suspicious of him, even though she didn't understand what he was talking about, but on the other hand, we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus in chapter 3. Nicodemus was the true insider. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, first time they describe him. He was one that was certainly religiously trained. And he had come to see Jesus. Now, we don't know all the reasons he'd come to Jesus to see Jesus. I think it's probably partly because he was curious. What does this all mean? But the truth that Ezekiel told was one that Nicodemus didn't understand either. Nicodemus got stuck on the first base. He got stuck. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says, how can that be? I'm too big to be born again. His religious training had taught him to understand that the way to God was righteous living and being separate from the impure. That's what the Pharisees specialized being separate from the impure. The way to God was to be away from impure activities, impure things, and impure and immoral people. He didn't think he needed any special water to be cleansed. He didn't understand that God's grace is different. He didn't understand his human inability to reach God because of his holiness. He thought he was, on, he was on the right path. He didn't need a new birth. He didn't need a complete restart. He was pretty good. Now, we don't see in chapter 3 the end of what Nicodemus' response was to a long soliloquy that Jesus has after, after they begin talking. But we do see in chapter 7, same time at the Feast of the Tabernacles, the other Pharisees, most of the Pharisees, were trying to arrest Jesus and finally put him away. Nicodemus stands up and says, we don't arrest people without a trial, having hearing from them. He was basically, uh, I was refuted saying, 
did you hear of anybody coming out of Nazareth that's to be the Messiah? And later we see Nicodemus, the very end of Jesus, just after his death, he helps Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus in the tomb from which Jesus rose three days later. So we, it certainly seemed that Nicodemus finally got the truth, but it was hard for him to understand that. What's the other side of Jesus' mission? Jesus seeks the lost who are the learned, who are the leaders, who are interested in spiritual matters, and who are slow to understand. You know, no one's beyond the reach of Jesus. We may think we're beyond the reach of Jesus. We may have friends we think are beyond the reach of Jesus, but they are not. We dare not assume someone is beyond the reach and deny him or her to hear the truth of God's love and salvation when we have opportunity to share it. We don't naturally know whom God is calling. So our default position needs to be we're going to share the gospel. But in one way, the Samaritan woman had an advantage over Nicodemus. The Samaritan woman knew her life was lost. It was a grim existence. She saw herself as a failure. She was alone. She had very few friends, apparently, and the man she was living with now wasn't even committed to her enough to marry her. Again, she was just trying to make the most out of a bad situation and get along in life. She didn't seem to think there's any chance for her, that there was any God that would care for her, a lonely, immoral woman in Samaria. She wasn't even looking for salvation. She just wanted to get through the next day. Note, she never responded to the promise of eternal life. She didn't pick up at it all. It's like she didn't even, couldn't even envision something so glorious from her supremely low station and status in life. Thus, we see her suspicious, careful talk with Jesus. In short, she wasn't even aware of a need for a Savior, a need for Jesus. She wasn't seeking him. She was just trying to get along. But praise God, Jesus didn't quit on her. Jesus knew she needed that cleansing water Ezekiel spoke of. She needed that new heart Ezekiel spoke of. And then she could have this spring of water welling up to her in her for eternal life. Jesus knew she needed to see that she was not only physically thirsty, but spiritually, she was dying of thirst. So he asked her to bring her husband to see him. She coyly answers, I have no husband. And then Jesus, I think, is very patient and sympathetic here. He goes on and says, you are right. Well, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. What you said is true. I think Jesus is terribly saddened by her plight. Her plight of being rejected by five consecutive men, either being rejected by them or having to suffer through their death, and now living with someone who won't even marry her. You know, she was living in a terribly male-dominated society. Women, especially single women, were vulnerable and powerless. But no, Jesus didn't suggest, you know what you need to do? You need to find a good husband who will love you and care for you. Well, that might have helped a little bit, but it wouldn't have changed her heart. She needed salvation. She needed Jesus. Jesus didn't say, you know, you act better and behave 
I bet the women will accept you. And you can kind of talk to them. Because women need to talk. I'm sorry. I guess that's a gender statement, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, they do better at talking. How about that? I'll say it that way. But that wouldn't deal with her sin either. In order to be free, she needed to have living water. But the Samaritan woman's a pretty clever woman. She might not have been well-trained or uh, been schooled, but she's smart. And she still had a bit of pride. She didn't want to expose herself to any more than she had to to Jesus. So she acknowledges, Jesus must have been a prophet. You can't come up with this kind of stuff. You've never seen me before. How do you know all that stuff? I don't know. But she must be a prophet. Because you knew about that marital mess I've had. I perceive you're a prophet. But then she quickly and cleverly tries to change the topic of discussion. She wants to get away from her personal mess and talk about something more erudite, something that prophets would probably talk about. Talk, religious people probably talk about this. So she thinks, I'm going to ask him, Jesus, do you think we should be worshiping here on Mount Gerizim, where we believe Abraham first worshiped God, where Melchizedek, I've been talking about before, met Abraham, where Abraham offered up his, was walked up to offer up his only son to the Lord? Or do you think you Jews are right in believing that Jerusalem and the temple is the proper place to worship? Now, I think that was a pretty clever idea. Let's talk about something that scholars would talk about. And it must certainly work for a prophet. He should go for this. But Jesus didn't take her bait at all. He was not to be dissuaded. Again, but this time he acts again as a prophet because he says, soon, neither on Mount Gerizim or on Mount Zion will true worshipers worship God. Jesus knew that within a generation, the Romans were going to come and destroy every rock in the temple. Much like the Maccabeans had destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim, hundred years earlier. And perhaps Jesus was envisioning the, the message he'd have to the Jewish leaders. Destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Jesus is saying, the place of worship that once was in the tabernacle, then in Solomon's temple, and then in Herod's temple, would be in him in the future. He, the one that would soon be crucified and resurrected three days later, is the focus of our worship. In him we find the exact radiance, I mean the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is our new temple, the place of worship where we find God and his spirit. In the words of Ezekiel, the water of his spirit will cleanse his chosen ones from the blackness of their sins. His spirit will remove their hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. And the Holy Spirit will dwell there. We read in Corinthians, Paul talks in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's like this one, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 2nd Corinthians, for we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Note in the 2nd Corinthians passage, we see God dwelling with them, the community of believers. God wants us to be in a community. He does not want us to be isolated and alone. Yes, we are individually temples of the Spirit because he lives within us if we know Christ. But we are collectively the temple as well. You might remember Darren's slide had all the one another. The whole, you can't, can't read the slide, but you had to kind of believe it. It's one another this, one another that, etc. Something else. <clears throat> Love one another, honor one another, build up one another, bear with one another. Remember the author of Hebrews when he says, uh, encourage us to stir one another up to love and good works. 
not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Yes, we're individually the temples. We are collectively the temple of God. But we understand wherever God dwells, there is his temple, and he dwells with us, his people. His spirit's within us. He's given us new hearts, hearts of flesh, and cleanses, cleanses us with the water of the spirit. Now Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman, the hour is coming. In fact, it's now here. The hour of the new covenant was at hand. And he goes and says something very seriously. God seeks true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And as Brian read, he goes on and says that those who worship God, quote, must worship in spirit and in truth. That's powerful. If we must worship in spirit and truth, what does that mean? The first question we have. Well, the first part sounds easy, but unfortunately, in Christendom, there's some disagreement about what the first word means in spirit. There's two camps, or three camps in that. There's the camp that thinks it's small s, that is, in our spirit, we need to worship. Uh, there's a capital S camp, this, we worship in the spirit, which means the Holy Spirit. Then there's a third camp, which says it's both. Uh, <clears throat> I'm using Sam, Sam Storm as my uh, lead on this. He's an influential evangelical pastor. We got some books of his out and back. He's an author who believes the gifts of the Spirit are still available to the church, as we affirm in our statement of faith here at Trinity. And I'm indebted to him. I've <clears throat> got a couple quotes in a row here. He says, To say that we worship God in spirit, with a capital or low, lowercase s, means, among other things, that it must originate from within, from our heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love for God and gratitude for, for all he is and has done. Worship cannot be mecha, mechanical or formalistic. This doesn't necessarily rule out, all, out certain rituals or lit liturgy, but it does demand that all physical postures or symbolic actions must be infused with heartfelt felt commitment, faith, love, and zeal. <clears throat> but the words... Spirit may also be the reference to the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says that Christians worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. It's the Holy Spirit who awakens in us an understanding of God's beauty and splendor and power. It's the Holy Spirit who stirs us to celebrate and rejoice and give thanks. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see and savor all that God is for us in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who I pray, I hope and pray, orchestrates our services and leads us in corporate praise of God. I think we all certainly agree we hope and pray that the Holy Spirit orchestrates our services and leads us in corporate praise of God. Storm's arguing that both interpretations of spirit have great significance and add value. We need to be sincere and should have zeal in our worship of God. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to fully worship God. He Storm summarizes it this way. Genuine, Christ-exalting worship, after all, is the fruit of both heat and light. The light of truth shines into our minds and instructs us about who God is. Such light, in turn, ignites the fires of passion and affection and heat of love, joy, gratitude, and deep satisfaction. He's talking here a little bit, too, about truth, the second part. We, need to, we must worship in spirit and in truth. In his words, our worship must be rooted and tethered to the realities of biblical revelation. God forbid that we should 
ever seeing heresy. Worship is not meant to be formed by what feels good, but by the light of what's true. Genuine Christ-exalting worship must never be mindless or based in ignorance. It must be doctrinally grounded, focused on the truth of all we know of our great triune God. You know, our worship must be consistent with the revealed truth of the, of the word. Jesus said that his word is truth. We dare not bear with, uh, worship on what seems good or is currently fashionable. Our worship needs to be biblical-based. Whereas Sam Storms says, must not be mindless and based on ignorance. We need to realize that our worship involves all of us, our intellect and our emotions. It's been said that Christianity requires more than just thinking, but never less. To worship in truth means we need to use our minds and search out the word of God for what is true. Great to hear. The Father is seeking such to worship him. Those of us who are looking for what's true, those of us who are worshiping in zeal, those of us who are calling the Holy Spirit to help us. I like the sense that the Father is seeking us. It reminds me of the prodigal son and the father that was outside waiting for that wayward young man to return. That's the God we have. In John 4, we see Jesus, Jesus enabling the Samaritan woman to be such a worshiper. The woman who had asked for what the place of worship should be, Jesus responded by saying, the place of worship is not the right question. A better question, maybe the best question is how to worship and whom to worship. Let's go to the end of the encounter with the woman from Sychar. Jesus' words on how to worship seems, again, not to really be understood by her. We can't really get much of a sense that she's catching on yet. Uh, <clears throat> she'd asked for about where we worship, and he comes back with this long story about that's the wrong question. The better question is how to worship. I think these words about worshiping in spirit were probably kind of alien to her. Perhaps to move the conversation further, she says that when the Messiah comes, and the Samaritans, based on Deuteronomy 18, believe the Messiah would be the new prophet God would raise up like Moses. But when he comes, she says, he will tell us all things. I think she's suggesting that when the Messiah comes, he will know for sure, he'll explain it so we can all understand. I can understand it, and Jesus, you can probably understand it better too. Then Jesus, who was still bringing her along to see her need for him, shocked her. Quote, I who speak to you, am he. I who speak to you am the Messiah. I think this is the first, I think it is the first and certainly the, the clearest statement from Jesus' own mouth that I know of, of him saying who he is. And to whom did she say this? I think to a humanly most unlikely candidate. But finally the woman at the well understood. The Holy Spirit pulled the blinders off her eyes and she could see. Now why did I say that? Maybe for a couple of reasons, but first, note, she left her precious water jar at the well. 
whole conversation with her, how to get water in this thing. I'd like to have better water. I don't have to go. And she's, the whole purpose for coming at noon in the heat was to have water. She hears this word, I who speak to you am he. And she drops her water jar and takes off. Something's happened to her. He came out in the heat of the day to just get a, another day, to live through another struggle. And she has her heart opened. And in excitement, she hurries back to the city. The one who wants to be lonely and away from everybody hurries back to see people. The great news had changed her life. And she was going to share with whoever she met. I would normally think it would be surprising for anyone who would listen to her based on her status, but perhaps it was because of her excitement and her changed demeanor that the people left their businesses, they left their activities, and they came out to see Jesus for themselves. John goes on and tells us later in the chapter that many of the Samaritans believed because of her testimony. And let's not get, make that too easy for her. Recognize her testimony. What was her testimony? He told me everything I ever did. And they're going to say, first question I would say, well, what did he tell you? Well, what, what did you do? They talked about. Well, that leads you into this mire of multiple marriages, of immorality, and sin and darkness. But you know, that didn't stop her. Something had happened that she was willing to expose herself to share the truth of Jesus. She was experiencing the spring of water welling up into her and overflowing to others. Springs of water that live, lead to eternal life. At last, she knew that Jesus, her Messiah, knew her and loved her. And that changed her immediately and forever. Tim Keller makes this point for me, writes, To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be known and loved, loved, that transforms you. You know, our biblical beliefs clearly state that an omniscient God knows us. We intellectually can't hide from God, but like Adam and Eve, we try. Sometimes we desperately try to hide our sins and weaknesses from him. Why? Maybe because like Adam and Eve, and maybe this woman is Sychar, we don't really trust him deep down that he loves us. Maybe we don't trust him because of our many sins. Maybe we don't trust him because we think he's going to withhold good things from us. The Samaritan woman had been known by at least six men, but may well not have been loved by any of them. He must have felt rejection after six marriages. Likely more than one had divorced her, and she apparently was not accepted by the women of Sychar either. She was alone to a great degree. She seemed to think that those who knew her best did not love her. And therefore, she retreated. She retreated to be alone and hide from people. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, and she was living in that fear. That provokes isolation. So she chose not to be known. Invisibility to her was better. It was part of her armor to protect her from this great fear of rejection. But, second half of Keller's, to be known and loved that transforms you. 
when she realized that Jesus knew her, her past failures, her failed marriages, her immorality, and still loved her, her life was transformed. Jesus, the Messiah, had come to her. Can you believe it? And we see her transformed as she shares the news of Jesus to everyone. One from the cross, the same Jesus cried out, I thirst. He, the one who promised the living water, indeed springs of living water to the followers, thirsted and died that we might have those springs of living water that don't stop flowing, that we might know him who knows us and whose love transforms us like the Samaritan woman. You know, in many ways, I was thinking, I need a text that would be good for Mother's Day. This certainly didn't sound like it to me. But I think this final truth is good for all of us to hear, for all of us, including every mom here. We need to be transparent with God. Let's confess our sins to him. Let's share our fears, disappointments, uncertainties with him. Let's open up those private rooms and messy closets of our lives to him. Let's seek his presence and trust his everlasting love for us. For to be known by him and still loved by him is transforming. It brings springs of water. And for the the many of us who are celebrating with moms in this day, may we show heightened interest in those very special people, those special ladies. May we desire to know them better, love them more, not just for what they, the innumerable things they do for us, but for who they are, God's special creatures that he graciously placed in our lives. May we love them and express that love to them, even knowing their weaknesses, even knowing their failures and their losses and limitations. For when we know them more and still love them for who they are, not for what they do for us, I think we're instruments of God in transforming the moms we know. And moms, let me say this, you are great examples of knowing your children and in that growing knowledge, still loving constantly. With God's blessing, you are transforming your children. He's using you as instruments for that purpose. We thank you for that tangible example of great love and acceptance. Yes, moms, God knows you. He knows your never-ending tasks. He knows your weariness. He knows your fears and your disappointments. But he also knows your hopes and dreams and love for your family and others, and your faith and desire to be the mom that God wants you to be through the power of his spirit. And he loves you, his daughter, with an everlasting love, a constant, eternal love. He is for you. He is with you, even at the end of the age. Moms, I trust you get some physical rest today. But more importantly, I pray you may be transformed by the Spirit's renewal of your minds as you trust in the one who thirsted in your behalf that you might have overflowing living springs of water bringing life to yourself and to others. Have a refreshing, renewing, happy Mother's Day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your truth. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to worship in spirit and in truth. Father, we, we long to be transformed. 
And Father, how freeing it is to know that you love us and even though we are weak, even though we fail you, that you love us and you care for us. Bless the moms, Lord. Moms who have so many different expectations put on them. They certainly can't meet them all. Lord, but with your Holy Spirit, they can meet the ones that you want them to meet. Give them a peace and satisfaction, that confidence that they're, when they're seeking after you and they're seeking to share your love in body, soul, and spirit with their families and others, that they are following you faithfully, that they are doing what you have them do. Father, may they have confidence in you. May they have peace in you. We pray in Jesus' name.